Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, not a very good Tuesday, August 1st. Jeez, not going to be a good Wednesday, August 2nd either. Uh, not a good Tuesday, August 1st for the Toronto Blue Jays in a couple different ways. The trade deadline was pretty underwhelming. That is true for most of Major League Baseball. It's particularly true for a Toronto Blue Jays team that we all expected to add some offense, add some punch, and they didn't do that. Now, if you look at the last couple of weeks, they made three different trades, all with the St. Louis Cardinals, as it turns out. And uh, the the net of those trades is good. They added Jordan Hicks, who last night aside is a cool weapon for the back end of the bullpen. They added Yenis uh, Cabrera, who you know, as a, as a last guy in the pen type, a second lefty, someone with options who can go up and down. Great. Again, throw yesterday out. <laughs> Nobody seemed to have it yesterday. Um, Cabrera is a reasonable enough ad. Paul DeYoung, you know, whether Bo Bichette is going to miss a, a good chunk of time or a small chunk of time is a reasonable ad. It, it either gives you some Bo Bichette insurance, it upgrades the Santiago Espinal or slash Ernie Clement kind of roster spot. Uh, they're good players. And they make the team a little deeper today than they were before those trades. However, it feels like it wasn't enough. This team has been a bat short. Um, This team has underperformed expectations offensively. That is true for most players at the individual level. If your name's not Bo Bichette, I guess uh, Brandon Belt and Danny Jens have been pretty good too. Um, but a lot of players have underperformed at an individual level. The team as a whole has dramatically underperformed in higher leverage situations with, with runners in scoring position, things like that. There is a reasonable case to be made that some of those things are going to regress in a positive direction. Vlad will be a little bit better. George Springer can't possibly be this bad. Dalton Varshaw will start to um, you know, walk into the odd bad pitch for a home run the runners in scoring position thing will figure itself out because, you know, over a large sample, there's not, it's not really a sticky skill. All those things are things you can believe, but it's hard not to feel like in a season that's been defined so far by missed opportunities in the division race, missed opportunities in individual games because of the hitting with runners in scoring position, missed opportunities against the teams you're jockeying with position jockeying with for position like Boston and Baltimore, that yesterday was not another missed opportunity. And I get it. There weren't a lot of additions around baseball. None of the American League East teams made huge moves. I I don't know that you look at Jack Flaherty in Baltimore, Aaron Savale in Tampa, uh, Keenan Middleton in New York, Luis Arias in Boston, and you say, yeah, those teams got further ahead or caught up to the Jays. I don't think that's true. I think... In total, you know, Flaherty and DeYoung and to a lesser extent Cabrera at least help you keep pace with those moves. But if everyone else failed to add in a meaningful way, while you didn't fall behind more, you also didn't make up ground on them. You didn't jump them. You didn't exceed them. You know, I made the joke in a piece for sportsnet.ca yesterday that, you know, there's that old joke uh, of being chased by a bear. You don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun your friend. The trade deadline's kind of the opposite. You have to outrun your friend and heading into the playoff race, you have to outrun the bear and the bear just got new shoes and and took some pre-workout and, you know, the bear's going. And the Blue Jays looked at their friend next to them and said, well, you know, we think we're as fast as you and, and that's fine. Uh, I think that that is probably something that is going to 
come back to bite them at some point. Now, it was also a bad Tuesday because Bo Bichette is hurt. And the reporting on that is inconsistent. I'll trust our guy Arden Zwelling here at Sportsed, who said it's not a certainty, but it's possible that Bo Bichette misses a couple weeks. It is patellar inflammation. They're going to give it at least today to, to see. You know, Paul DeYoung's not going to be available until today, so why make a roster move uh, before you have to? Why make a decision on the Bobochet thing? Ernie Clement is here in the interim. Even if Bobochet only misses a little bit of the time, that's your best player still missing a little bit of time. And then Tuesday also sucked because the Blue Jays got their teeth kicked in by the Baltimore Orioles yet again, 13 to three. It was an abject disaster. They fall to one and seven against the Orioles, seven and 22 in the division. It sucked. The Orioles, I don't know, maybe, maybe this hot dog situation is too distracting because now the Keegan and I have blown the lid off of it. It's all any, anyone could focus on on a Tuesday, but uh, it's a disaster. They, they lose 13 to three. They are now seven and a half back of the division. Um, it's just one game. It's just two games. It's just eight games against the Orioles, or it's just 15 games against the Red Sox. But again, it's been a season defined so far by missed opportunities and Maybe losing 13-3 isn't a missed opportunity because you were so far away from the win, but it really does feel like their inability to figure out the Baltimore Orioles and to a lesser extent the Boston Red Sox, who are not too far behind them, um, it is, you know, a key storyline of this season. So there's a lot of negativity there. I think a lot of people were feeling that way as the deadline came and went and the Bobachette news came and went and a 13-3 butt kicking came and went. Let's see how our pal Keegan Matheson of MLB.com of BlueJays.com is feeling about it. Keegan, uh, how you doing, pal? I'm doing great. You know, none of that news is good, but I'm, uh, I'm at my most comfortable when everything is crumbling around everyone. You know, it's, uh, that's my home field. So it's, uh, it was a, an ugly day, but man, oh man, that was a, a whirlwind. A trade deadline, Ryu, and a loss like that. That's as busy a day as you're going to see at the ballpark. So busy, in fact, that we got you in a suit down at, at field level. I know yesterday wasn't the hottest Toronto summer day, but you you got a petition here for the deadline to be moved to the cooler months of April or October, I think. Yeah, what a treat that was. A little suit day. You, you get it about once a year when I really lie about myself and suit up for TV. But, uh, man, we got lucky. If that had have been an open roof, 35-degree <laughs> day, I think you would be playing a, a slow orchestral piece right now and doing an in-memoriam, having the Blue Jays beat line up to share their favorite memory of me. It would be a, a short line, I think. I, I know John Schneider probably <laughs> uh, would pour one out for you, given he his complaints about the heat are, are often similar to yours. Uh, but I don't know from there, buddy. Uh, Julia might be dancing. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how that plays out. Uh, and so, okay, let's turn it serious. Yesterday was... Uh, a pretty bad day. Let's start with the the high level thing from the game, which is the Orioles once again embarrassed the Blue Jays thirteen to three this time. Uh, I, they kind of took the the Jays can't win or close games against the Orioles, and we're like, okay, fine. You're worried about close games against the Orioles. Here's a thirteen to three drubbing. Jays now one and seven against the Orioles, seven and twenty two in division. I know from a statistical and analytic standpoint, there is nothing really to that, but. Keegan, it's been pretty dramatic and, and some pretty high-level losses to the Orioles. Is there something to it? 
It's amazing. And if you can't beat the Orioles, you're toast. You have to find a way to beat this team. The Orioles fascinate me. I think if they spend any amount of money this offseason, they go from scary to terrifying. This is such a well-built organization right now. And, Blake, I, I think back to game one of this series when Chris Bassett pointed to what he called their team approach. Not an individual approach, but a consistent team approach. And we saw that again yesterday. They were ambushing the Blue Jays pitchers. Very aggressive, a lot of hard contact, and it just kept happening and happening and happening. That's what it looks like when an offense is functioning at its highest level. They are threatening every inning. They're scoring most innings. And this has happened so fast. This was not supposed to happen this year for the Orioles. This is ahead of schedule, but it's already happening. And when you see them in a division that already has the Rays, Yankees, and Red Sox, who are the old players, we know them, that is a pretty daunting thing. If you're the Blue Jays and you are trying to compete in this division and in this league, the Orioles being this good, this quick, has to leave a pretty awful feeling in your stomach. It does. And look, they bottomed out. They did the thing that no fan base wants to go through after that 2016 wildcard game. And hey, maybe this is Edwin Encarnacion's fault. He, he just sent the Orioles <laughs> back to the Stone Age. They had to tear everything down to the studs. And now they have all this terrific young talent reaching the majors. They have arguably still the strongest system in all of baseball. Their fans paid the freight on that with years of, of unwatchable baseball. But it's not as if the timeline was that long. 2016 is not that far ago. The Toronto Blue Jays have not made the playoffs that many more times than the Baltimore Orioles since then. Uh, it really is ahead of schedule. And, and, you know, they've kind of jumped the Blue Jays on the timeline, I think, where this is this year, arguably last year is the year that the Jays were supposed to take that step to class of the division. Now, something that they could have done to help to that effect is be a little more aggressive at the trade deadline. They opted not to do that. Uh, so so let's talk deadline. Uh, we will circle back to Hyunjin Ryu and his debut yesterday. But, you know, it's worth measuring the Jays against the Orioles and the rest of the American League East in terms of what those teams did at the trade deadline. The Rays adding Aaron Savale and some AAA catching and pitching depth that we're probably not too worried about until the Rays turn yet another fringe catcher into a productive guy. Um you know, the Orioles adding Jack Flaherty and a little before that, Shintaro Fujinami, um, the, the Yankees and Red Sox making just minor tweaks. I know some people could look at that and see what the Jays did and say, well, yeah, that was the market. Nobody made huge splashes at the deadline. Nobody in the AL East got dramatically better. You didn't lose any ground. Keegan, my approach to that, my my perspective on that is that while that is fine as a floor thinking thing, it also speaks to the missed opportunity of you had a chance when the teams around you weren't getting significantly better to catch up some ground or add separation between yourself and the other teams in the American League East. Where do you land on that? Are, are you okay with the Jays? Not passivity because they did make three moves uh, and address some needs, but the the unwillingness to go even bolder. How did you feel about that yesterday? Yeah, not seeing a little more boldness after the Jordan Hicks move, I think, surprised me. Because when you go out and shop near the top of the market for arguably the best reliever available, who is a rental, which is a bit of a break from their typical strategy, they typically like to get guys with team control. When you see them do that, quote-unquote, early, a couple of days ago, you expect a bit more to happen along with it. 
And where the Blue Jays are now, if you zoom out and look at how they have upgraded or impacted their team, they've added a very good reliever who throws the ball about as hard as anyone on this planet. That's a good thing. But you're looking at what down the stretch? 16, 18, 20 innings there. So that will have an impact, uh, maybe not an everyday impact. And then you look at the addition of DeYoung as well. He will be starting at shortstop for at least a bit, I believe. Will he replace Bo Bichette's value? No, but he can protect it defensively. When Bo is back, where is he playing? A bit of second maybe, maybe backing up shortstop. But is that going to move the needle day-to-day in a significant way? Is that going to raise the ceiling like you talk about there? Not really, I don't think. It, it makes them a better team but not much of a different offense. I I was still expecting or looking for the Blue Jays to go out and find that right-handed bat somewhere, that bat that helps this this lineup from the end of the bench, from that absolute ghost town of a 26-man on the roster that (laughs) has barely been used. Uh, I think there's a, a lot of nights you can slip you or I in there and nobody would notice. And I know this was a tough market. It's a very tough market, and it's, Easy for me to sit here sipping my coffee and say, you know what, you've got to find a way to find that bat, but a uh, really not an ideal market to be shopping in this year. And I think you see that represented by a lot of teams being kind of quiet. Especially on the position player side, we're we're looking at a market where you know the headline items were Carlos Santana and Jamer Candelario and Randall Grichik, right? It's not as if you know Teoscar Hernandez is Teoscar's Hernandez, uh, to be <laughs> grammatically correct. We're flying uh, around, and I get that to some extent. You mentioned Paul DeYoung, and you know he's going to help more on the defensive side than the offensive side. For anyone who hasn't checked out the the old baseball card on DeYoung, yes, in 2019 he was an All Star. He hit. 30 30 home runs. He actually hit 74 home runs over his first three seasons in the majors without even uh, in, until that third year, uh, a full-time workload. So he's got some real pop, but each of the last two seasons, he also hit below 200. So um, that's kind of what you're dealing with there. Now, Keegan, what did you make of Ross Atkins's comments yesterday, uh, a little after the deadline, because you, you laid it out there. It wasn't a, very rich market for buyers. There were very few sellers. Those sellers don't have a lot of good players uh, to use, uh, you know, an uh, uh, Arden's Welling Shai term. There wasn't a lot of inventory there, but I also read a little bit of frustration into Atkins's comments uh, in in terms of, you know, whether how the market played out or how some negotiations played out. It, It did seem a little bit there that he was, you know, frustrated with, with how the day had went. Did you get that sense from Ross as well? I did, and, and that's where this trade market comes into effect as a a living and breathing thing that does not look the same every year. That can be frustrating. It's not a matter of a GM sending a group text to 29 <laughs> other GMs and saying, hey, I want this. They've got to be selling it. It has to be available first. It's not a Walmart. So Atkins saying yesterday that some of the names that were were rumored to be going to the Blue Jays or that they were hoping were available weren't quite as available. And that's a bit of a byproduct of there being a lot of teams stuck in the middle. The middle is such a terrible place. I wish there were just 15 buyers and 15 sellers. The middle is where teams go to die. But a lot of those clubs, just on the edge, maybe they're three games out, six games out, six and a half. And instead of doing something major in either direction, have just kind of altered. I believe Ross called them roster management type of trades where you're not really changing the franchise, but you're adjusting. And that's a bit what we saw more of. 
yesterday. So it didn't seem, it didn't feel like those big moves were available. He said that after the DeYoung trade, of course there were more moves available to them, but smaller things, things that aren't going to really have a ton of impact, again, on the ceiling of this roster. Because the Blue Jays, depth-wise, if you even need to reach down to AAA with some of those prospects, there's a good group of hitting prospects there. You can find your 25th or 26th man. It was about finding a player who could, maybe two or three times a week, raise the ceiling of this lineup or change the identity just a little bit. And doesn't seem like that was uh, well-stocked. It doesn't. And, and no, you know, those names at, at AAA who could potentially come up and help, they're real. And Ross Atkins even paid lip service to it. I believe he got asked about some of the DFA candidates. And if you didn't see, you know, in addition to Nelson Cruz, some names that are expected to be out there or are already out there on the DFA market, a Trey Mancini, who's a, a righty bat who hits lefties pretty strong, even though he's fallen off of late. Uh, Colton Wong and Gene Segura as uh, as kind of infield depth pieces, maybe one of those guys is an up great on the Ernie Clement spot, but uh, we just saw a couple Caesar series against Colton Wong and it is, uh, it is not the Colton Wong <laughs> of old to be sure. Now um, this isn't, you know, this doesn't make anyone feel better about the trade deadline, but Keegan, you're a guy who focuses in on the prospects a lot. When you look at, at that crop and we're talking specifically Addison Barger, Arelvis Martinez, Davis Schneider, maybe to some extent Spencer Horwitz, even though, you know, there's some positional redundancy there in Horwitz's case. Barger, Martinez, Schneider can all bounce around the diamond a little bit, are all bat first prospects. Um, of course, when it comes to prospects, you have to worry about what's best for their development. Is it right for a guy to come up and only play once or twice a week on the bench? Having acknowledged that, is there a name from that group that you think is most ready to help this team? If we're talking about, say, the Ernie Clement, uh, formerly Jordan Luplo spot on the roster? Yeah, I would lean towards the Addison Barger and the Davis Schneider uh, edge of that. Aurelius Martinez had a fantastic season. Full credit to him for turning it around after that ridiculous April. But I think he's a guy that you want to just develop a little more traditionally, prospect-wise. Still just 21, only a couple of weeks in AAA, so... Let him finish out the season there, I think, and then go into next year with a shot to do a bit more. But Addison Barger has looked better lately. That hard contact is turning into results. And Davis Schneider, I think, is one of the better prospect stories in this system. And Davis Schneider, I think, is a guy, Blake, that if he gets a shot, fans are going to love. Hmm. Because he's got that Dan Ugla build. He's got a great mustache, which goes a long way. And hits for some power. You know, Playing around the field like he does leading the Bisons in home runs. That power is legitimate. He's developed that in the minor leagues over these last few years. But when you look at Barger and Schneider, would they be coming up to start? I don't think so. There's not exactly that spot. But the Blue Jays are an injury away. And I think this season has spoiled people in a good way because the Blue Jays have been, A, very lucky with injuries, and B, have done a good job at avoiding them. I'm trying not to call it all luck. There's a lot that goes into, uh, you know, being a pro athlete, and the Blue Jays, rotation-wise, fielding-wise, have avoided injuries very well. That's important. But when Bo Bichette pulled up, I think that was a reminder for a lot of people, myself included, that, hey, this can go wrong really quick. Like, something bad can happen every day. And if that happens again, the Blue Jays do have a couple of good options there. In AAA, Barger being the quote-unquote top prospect, I believe number six on our list at MLB Pipeline, 
And Davis Schneider, I think, is in that 28-29 range, but about to jump up on our update, about to jump a good 10-plus spots, I believe. So these guys are exciting options, and when you include them with the Martinez's and the, the Horwitz, like you mentioned off the top, Blake, uh, options for next year as well, because there are some free agents on this team in Belt, Kiermaier, Merrifield, etc. And the secret sauce to all of this is being able to develop guys. If you can have a Davis Schneider or an Addison Barger come up and play a role next year instead of paying a guy $10 million bucks, that's how you win in any sport. That's how you win, getting a few guys contributing early on their rookie deals. It is, and it's not the sexy way to add to your roster, and it's certainly more of an off-season thought than a, a post-trade deadline thought, but those guys are there for AAA is not that far away, even if every scout tells us that the gap between AAA and the major leagues has never been uh, larger, especially uh, for pitchers, as we've uh, we've seen at times. Uh, you mentioned the free agents there, and I do think that's something worth keeping in mind here, too, with the lack of activity at the deadline is, you know, we had talked a lot about the Jays potentially adding someone with control who could address that third base, second base, center field, DH uh, hole that is coming in 2023. And it certainly looks like, there's going to be, you know, these next two months on that Buffalo Bisons roster and to a lesser extent, the New Hampshire Fisher Cats roster. Hey, this is the early start to a competition for maybe a roster spot next year, maybe even a crack at, at starting. So that's fun. If you're someone who keeps an eye on, on the prospects, certainly worth keeping an eye on how those guys are doing at Buffalo over the next couple of days and weeks here, uh, especially if we get a Bo Bichette news item today that that he's hitting the il rather than playing this out uh day-to-day -day. keegan what what was your read on that yesterday it seemed very uncertain still um what exactly the plan will be with bo Bichette and how severe this patella inflammation is yeah it requires a certain level of reading between some lines and some some guessing in between that which is a thing you hate to do with injuries but it sounds like he's avoided the big, scary structural injury. You're not hearing the word tear. You're not hearing any of those scary words. But it does still sound like this is you know, more serious than a, a zero injury. Now, will we see an IL stint for Bo? That's, that sounds like it's still very much on the table. I expect we'll learn more today pregame. We usually talk to John Schneider around 4 o'clock for people waiting on that news. But with Bo's knee and the Paul DeJong addition, I think you can start to do some of the math when you look at this. But Ross uh, Atkins' wording yesterday was that they're still very optimistic that he's going to help them you know, at this, this season. So that's, um, that might mean in a week or two. That might not mean tomorrow or the next day. And that's okay. As long as Bo is back for those final you know, month, those final weeks being part of that stretch run and healthy, that's what's important. If it takes a week or two, no problem. But avoiding the big injury, which, man, oh, man, it looked like it. A non-contact injury is, well, I guess that's every injury in baseball. But as a, a base runner, not what you want to see at all. That was really nerve-wracking for the organization. But looks like the, the worst case is off the table, at least. It certainly is. Um, so speaking of, of injuries and returns from injuries, uh, the big man, Hyunjin Ryu, made his return yesterday. Now, he was hit hard early. John Schneider used the term ambush. He, he wasn't missing uh, a ton of bats. I believe he had eight swing and miss on the day, five of those with the curveball. They tried to let him go past five and dive, uh, gives up the home run there to Gunnar Henderson. So his final line has four earned over five plus, uh, nine hits, three strikeouts, 
80 pitches, uh, the fastball velocity averaging 89.3. There's a lot we can pull from in there. What was your impression of Hyunjin Ryu's return to the major leagues uh, for the first time in well over a year? Big picture, a a great thing to see. I almost wish it had fallen on a day outside of the trade deadline because I think Ryu is such an important pitcher in this league and not just in Major League Baseball, his time in Korea, how good a pitcher he has been through his career. This, that was a major day yesterday. And he nailed the Tommy John rehab. Like, when I cover the next Tommy John and the next Tommy John in my career, I'm going to be pointing back towards how Hanjin Ryu did his. The exact timeline he followed, he nailed it. And he came back in better shape, looking great. And that's the, that's the feel-good part of this. Ryu being back, the teammates love it. And he's got a chance to be part of finishing up what he started. He was the first big name in the door back in late 2019 when he signed. This was the the message of, hey, this young Blue Jays team, they're going to spend some cash. They're going to go after this. But the Blue Jays on the more realistic side, they need him to contribute. There's no time for moral victories, unfortunately. I would love there to be more time for that. But it is uh, getting to the point of the season where the Blue Jays, will unfortunately need Ryu to be good right away. And that's tough. That's a lot to ask for Ryu because there's such a fine line for him, whether he is throwing 89 and getting a hit hard or if he's up to 90, 91 and missing bats. It's a fine line. He has done a brilliant job of walking that fine line for most of his career. But like we saw yesterday, when he's on the other side of it, there's a ton of hard contact. He was doing a good job of slowing down that curveball, throwing the big looping rainbow and getting some whiffs, like you mentioned. But when he was in the zone, the Orioles were jumping on it. I think that's going to be what the next team tries to do as well against Ryu. And he will get several opportunities, bare minimum. He's in that rotation, and he's going to run with it. But the Blue Jays need it to be immediate, which is a tough ask for a guy Hmm coming back with a scar on his elbow after nearly 14 months. So a bit of an awkward balance there, but uh, I think Ryu is a guy you can still still bet on and a guy who certainly has earned uh, a lot of respect with this and earned, uh, earned some more shots. Certainly has uh, a similar sentiment maybe for George Springer, who is heading into some nefarious territory here. He is 0 for his last 34. That is one out off of tying the Blue Jays franchise record for hitless streak. Uh, Ed Sprague did it back in the day. Danny Jansen did it in 2021. The 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 logical answer to this is George Springer is just going to find a hole. It's going to happen here. Um, but your where is your level of patience, your level of grace for George Springer right now as the OPS uh, dips below 700 this late in the season? Yeah, this is another great example of how patience changes through the year if this is april you're saying hey this sucks but it will turn but at this point the blue jays are in a playoff race and george springer was brought in to perform in the postseason the blue jays need to get him there he needs to be in those moments and we haven't seen it lately we've seen some quote-unquote hard contact where he's barreling it up it's being hit in the air but it's not going far enough you know it's dying close to the warning track we haven't quite seen that We haven't seen the speed as much lately as well. This is a a long season. These guys are sore and tired, absolutely, and and that impacts some players more than others. You never know quite what a player is dealing with fully. And the Blue Jays need Springer. 
period. This guy has to be part of their success. This is, even if he goes another O for another 34, this is, for me, not a discussion of what do you do, who plays right field whatsoever. George Springer has to be part of their success. He is such a dynamic, all-around player in the field, on the bases, at the plate, an incredible leadoff hitter when he's there, but it has not worked lately. And an OPS under 700 for George Springer just doesn't make sense. That is not what you would have expected ever. This is, you know, I guess behind Alec Manoa's start, this is one of the most surprising things we've seen this season. Because in terms of big injuries, Blake, big injuries that we hear about or know about, hasn't been much with George. He's been healthy. Right field seems to have been a good move for him. But the offensive numbers not being there is tough. And... He's come up in a few big spots lately where the Blue Jays need a bit of that magic, and it hasn't been there. So, like you say, he just needs to find a hole. This will break at any moment. But, again, you don't have a lot of time for soon or tomorrow or eventually when the calendar's in August. You certainly don't. And guess what? If you thought things were bad against the Orioles, uh, you're headed to Boston for another series with another team you've really struggled with this weekend. And that team's only a game and a half back of you. So, uh, you know, get busy living if you're if you're George Springer and the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, Keegan. Keep up the great work. You got it, buddy. Take care. Keegan Matheson of MLB.com and BlueJays.com. He mentioned Springer coming up in a big situation, not not just the Ofer stretch, but coming up in big spots. And, and I think, you know, some of the struggles of this team were pretty evident in the sixth inning last night. Now, look, the Jays went on to lose 13-3. to three. Maybe it wouldn't have mattered, but Brandon Belt leads off with a double. And then Vladimir Guerrero Jr., George Springer, Matt Chapman go down in order with a runner on second and nobody out on seven pitches total um that is just those they, they just weren't competitive at bats especially at that part of the game and it leads us to a question from ryan talbot on twitter who who asked can you explain how chapman has such a high war he's a strikeout machine now look i'm not i'm not yj's on twitter i'm not i'm not the stats guy but the the matt chapman strikeout thing is real he struck out three times yesterday he struck out nine times in his last five games uh he's at a 27.6 percent strikeout rate on the season i know that that sounds extremely high. Um, we do have to cali- recalibrate a little bit though, given the, the high strikeout environment we work in right now. So for example, there are 400 players this year who have been up to plate at least a hundred times. Chapman's 88th in strikeout rate. That's high, but it's not like tippy top of the league. It's not that he strikes out uh, a gargantuan amount. It's just a little higher than you'd like. Now, why does he have such a, a high war? He's been worth three and a half wins above replacement per fan graphs. Well, he's a very good defender at a premium defensive position. That goes a long way. He's uh, not a base stealer, but he grades out as a plus base runner in terms of not making outs on the base paths, uh, even though, of course, as with anyone, we remember the ones that he does, um, taking the extra base first to third, second to home, things like that. Uh, so very good defender at a premium position, grades out as above average on the base pass. And then despite the strikeouts, he has been about 25% better than an average hitter at the plate when we factor in the fact that he also takes a lot of walks and has hit for not just uh, decent home run power with 14 home runs, but he's had 33 doubles on the season. So um, don't let the strikeouts cover up too much there, Ryan. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, let's take a look at the Orioles side of things. The vibes are too good 
around the Baltimore Orioles. Anthony Santander, uh, post-game, talking to our pal Melanie Newman. And uh, you get the feeling that this Orioles team is on a wave. And whether they added or, or just tweaked at the deadline, uh, there was going to be no shortage of confidence in that clubhouse. Let's take a break. Let's talk to Melanie Newman about exactly that as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. Young Cardinals. That's uh, what the Blue Jays were shopping for at the deadline. That's what the Orioles were shopping for at the deadline. Apparently the only seller that exists to American League East teams, the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, the Jays, of course, picking up Genesis Cabrera, Jordan Hicks, and Paul DeYoung over three separate trades, sending out four prospects. Uh, two of them, higher name, two of them pretty fringy. Um, the Orioles then dipping into their own prospect pool, sending their number 14 and number 16 prospect per baseball America to the Cardinals for starting pitching rental, Jack Flaherty. The Orioles probably didn't need to load up. They're already the class of the American League East so far. We've seen firsthand just how good this team is uh, as they've taken seven of eight against the Toronto Blue Jays this year. But it's fun that they did. They pushed a little in. They addressed the starting pitching need. Uh, I'd imagine it feels pretty good around that clubhouse right now. Someone who is around that clubhouse regularly is Melanie Newman, reporter and host at Mass and Melanie. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing well. How are you? I uh, I've been better, honestly, as as far as the Toronto <laughs> Blue Jays go. Uh, another another beat down at the hands of the Orioles uh, yesterday. I got to ask, what does this team have against me personally? You know, um, I can't really answer that. I think it's more of Ryan Mountcastle mm. and uh, his ability to just really vibe off of the Rogers Center. His numbers have been unreal. It's it's ridiculous, and it's multiple seasons of this now. And sure, he's not the only Oriole doing it, but he's the one with the big contrast to what he does um, everywhere else. I, I am curious, Melly, on, on a more serious bent, um, this Orioles team – They've operated all year and really last year, like while there's maybe a, a, a healthy level of respect for the other teams they're fighting with in the American League East who are more established and more veteran, there isn't really that reverence of them. There, There is a real confidence to this Orioles group despite their youth. Is that something you feel day to day around this clubhouse? You know, it definitely is. And we talked about this last night um, with a couple of our analysts. It's just the fact that they're almost too young to understand that this is supposed to be an intimidating division. And some of these situations that they're going into, especially being on the road, we all know that going into New York, Boston, Toronto, they're imposing cities and the stadiums give off that energy that you would hope for. But um, they're unfazed for whatever reason that is. And you kind of ride that wave for as long as you can. They're just here to have fun. They wake up every day with an ability to wash off a loss. If that's what occurred the night before, better than anything that I've ever seen. Um, and some of them have admitted that it's been easier than in the past. Now that these young guys are up here just to be able to move forward and keep that team focused. But um, it's been a fun one. I know that's a one-sided feeling right now, but it's been fun for that clubhouse. So what was the 
energy like or, or the reaction like yesterday when the news comes down that the Orioles are adding Jack Flaherty? Because there'd been, and, and I know Jack Flaherty is not, you know, he's not Justin Verlander. He's not the absolute headline item on deadline day, but there'd been a sense that this team might not do a ton because of the confidence in the group and the commitment to the long-term plan. Um, what, was that a, a nice additional shot in the arm for, for that group to see that this front office is investing in reinforcements for them? Yeah, I think it is. And you look back at other years that other teams have been in a similar position and nothing happened. And you get that unrest in the clubhouse of, okay, we didn't get anybody. Um, what does this say from our ownership group towards us? That's not the case with the Orioles. You know, they wanted to give them that reassurance that, look, we believe that this is a team that is built and destined for October and November. Um, I, I think the pitching right now has been holding up, but you look at the fact that it's a young core. And for Kyle Bradish throwing last night, you know, he's now within six and two-thirds innings of surpassing what he did in all of 2022. Dean Kramer is less than six innings away from doing the same. Tyler Wells, who just sent down, has well gone past what he's done. So you get somebody like Flaherty. You didn't need, you know, this rock star ace. You didn't need to spend the money on somebody like a Verlander or a Dylan Cease, especially with the price that the White Sox were looking for to give them that ability to boost up. And the reason is, is one, Flaherty has postseason experience, but two, they still have John Means, who is destined to be healthy and return to the team sometime in August. That's going to be a huge lift for them. This is a guy who's already had a no-hitter with the Orioles. Mm. He's been through the ups and downs with this team. You also have D.L. Hall. Now, I don't think D.L. will rejoin the rotation. There's kind of been that general decision that he'll be a guy who can really be a flamethrower out of the bullpen, but also for multiple innings. Um, and, and that's where Flaherty makes sense. You know, somebody who's been a little less on the numbers this year but knows how to stretch, it's a good fit for the Orioles. So when you look at how this rotation shapes up with Flaherty, with some of the innings load concerns that, that you'd mentioned, whether John Means rejoins the rotation, whether uh, Tyler Wells does, do you see a scenario, maybe it's not, anything immediate maybe it's more when rosters expand down the line could this Orioles team try a six-man rotation for a bit just to continue to get all of these arms in the mix and make sure guys are you know healthy and where they need to be innings load wise heading into the postseason you know it's going to be interesting because they've been on the precipice of a six-man rotation before and there's a model that actually started with Houston that I go back and look at from time to time and it's the fact that this starts in their minor league system where they would have eight to nine starters on a team. And what they were doing is that first sweep through, you have, you know, your one through five starting. The rest that are in the bullpen are then carrying four innings after that. Effectively, they're using only two pitchers. And if you need that one to go the final inning of the game, you bring them in. Um, I'm not saying they're going to follow that exact minor league model doing this, but it is possible to see guys working in and out. We've watched Cole Irvin, you know, going three, four innings plus out of the bullpen. And if they've needed a start, he's certainly available to jump back in. Um, so I think you've got multiple situations there that you could work through, whether that be a six man or you're just constantly swinging people in and out. This is a group that seems to be fully bought in to being flexible. You're not getting those egos of guys saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming out from the pen. They just want to be here. They want to be a part of this clubhouse in whatever form of contribution that takes. 
they've been really happy with it this year. And it's one of the more special clubhouses I've ever been around. Do you anticipate, uh, and sorry if this is putting you on the spot, but I, I still see a TBD on the probable pitchers for Baltimore uh, for the Thursday finale of this series. Was there any word yesterday if that could be Jack Flaherty in that spot? Yeah, so general manager Mike Elias was asked yesterday if he's filling that, and it basically was left left open. Now, Flaherty has not pitched in a week. Wednesday was his last time out, which means he's obviously more than rested to be able to do that. Um, they're just at this point leaving the door open and saying, hopefully he's here at that point, and you know, we'll we'll kind of see. I do. I wish I could give you a more concrete answer than that, but. Basically, the door's left open to see if he can get up here in time. And uh, if not, they'll be figuring it out. And that's where I go back to, again, guys like Cole Irvin, who have been in the pen and obviously are starters that can come out and, and fill those gaps. Um, I, I know that he's in double A right now, so he's not necessarily uh, a near term option for Baltimore. But I, I am curious because, you know, on the surface at, at a high level, you look at Tyler Wells's numbers, you see a, a 380 ERA and yes, some indicators underneath that are uh, a little troubling. And I know he'd had three rough starts in a row. Is the expectation that Wells will rejoin the major league team at, at some point, or is this kind of a, Hey, go down there and figure some stuff out and we'll evaluate on the fly. What, what is the plan um, with Wells right now? For Wells? I mean, he just went, so this is not going to be something that comes anytime soon. And um, like I said, a minute ago, I think you go back to the main reason he is where he is right now is just how far past his innings that he is. I mean, there's a little fatigue that's going on there, even with the break from all-star kind of expanding that rotation, giving him a, a chance to skip. You could still see that peeking through a little bit. And I, I think there's a degree of why they sent him to the pitching lab that we have in Bel Air, Maryland, is maybe also getting back to his root mechanics that he had to start the year that made him so successful. But um, this is a guy, again, he wants to be here. He wants to fight for those seven, eight innings of work. However, you have to adjust to the fact that pitchers who came up in the year 2020 had the weirdest come up mm -hmm. of anybody and, and trying to find a way to stretch those innings year over year. When we are coming from a time where pitchers used to throw three, 400 innings, it's just not that way right now. And, and they've got to find a way to give him a breather and hopefully have him rejoin at some point, especially down the stretch. Grayson Rodriguez, another guy who dealt with that lost 2020. Now he did get 100, 102 innings or so in, in 2021, but a shortened season last year and he's up over a hundred already. Um, he, at least to me, doesn't look like a guy feeling the fatigue. He's been uh, pretty terrific since he came back up to the major league level. We'll see him uh, tonight in the in the the third game of this series what has been clicking for Grayson Rodriguez since coming back up yeah for Rodriguez it was all about confidence um you know coming up here getting a little bit rattled because the thing was is his numbers weren't out of this world when he made his initial major league debut this was somebody who you could see still had a little bit of groundwork that he was trying to go through and then got thrown into the fire um, at the point where the Orioles needed a starter, and he had to figure things out from there. So he comes back now. He's got a, a better sense of himself. He went back to some of the stuff he needed in terms of the way that he's using his pitches. The best part about it is you mentioned the fatigue. That fastball at 98-99, touching 100 on occasion, is not max effort fastball. I mean, that's what you want to see from a pitcher, especially when you're talking about the durability through a season for a rookie. Um, but it's just his ability to attack his own again. You know, he's not nibbling anymore. It's not giving guys really a chance. He knows exactly what he wants to do. 
has a better plan, I think, in place with James McCann and Adley Rutschman. And it really just comes down to that zone aggression and his confidence in being up there and knowing how to kind of properly rifle through his pitch selection, especially if one night might not be working for him up front. So that is an awful lot of positive and a lot of things going in the right direction for the Orioles. And that's why uh, you sit atop the, the American league East, right? It's a very difficult division and you've outperformed just about everyone. I am curious though, Melanie, if there are concerns left over after the deadline, after the Jack Flaherty and Shintaro Fujinami uh, additions, you know, where, where are the spots that the Orioles are, you know, keeping an eye on or where you're, you know, personally, your concerns lie, hey, this Orioles team is really, really good. But if there's something that's going to keep them from playing deep into October, what is that element? Where, where is there still a little bit of uncertainty for this group? I understand this is going to come off very conceited, but <laughs> in my, it's from everything I've seen, this is the only truth that I've known. I don't think they have any concerns left. I, I think you go out, you get the starter that you need. Fujinami has shown us that he can throw two innings, and not just two innings, but two innings of high leverage relief. That is incredibly difficult to come by. And you look at his ability to give Yenier Cano, Felix Bautista a break, it's letting other guys work back into the mix as well. So I just said, too, you know, you have John Means and D.L. Hall coming back. That's perfect. You have stacked arms at this point. If anything, you're fighting to find a place for them. Tyler Wells could come back. Jack Flaherty is going to join. You look at the position player side of things. Brandon Hyde has a very unique problem right now in that it's almost a little league team, and he basically has two men who can play at every single spot. It's, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. But you have both Ryan O'Hearn and Ryan Mountcastle, first base, DH. James McCann has been a stellar backstop this year for the Orioles, in addition, obviously, to the face of Adley Rutschman. You look at the outfield that's also been stacked, and that's adding to the fact that Cedric Mullins and Aaron Hicks are also due to come back off of the IL. Adam Frazier has been holding it down at second base, but you've got Ramon Arias, who can go anywhere. Gunnar Henderson, I think, is going to be a generational talent, and he's also got Jorge Mateo, who, as you guys have seen, mm. his range, defense, and speed is just something to kind of sit back and stare at. So I, I really feel that it, preseason, a lot of people were barking that there needed to be another bat. This team has shown them that they are delivering everything they could have possibly wanted. They don't really need to go out and find another piece. No, it's, and I don't think it sounds conceited because, you know, we look for it here in Toronto. It's like, yeah, I guess their defense is like slightly below <laughs> average at some spots, but oh, Cedric Mullins is going to come back. And, and that kind of exactly. resolves a lot of that. Jordan Westberg is just like a part-time player who'd be the top and most exciting prospect call up for most teams in the league. It's a, uh, it's a lot. And Melanie, I, I, I don't dig it. I got to be honest. I, I don't, I'm not <laughs> looking forward to like seven or eight years of this. It's something that Baltimore has waited a very long time for. These fans are just the blue collar salt of the earth. They hold steady with this team. Um, I, I, I wish I could explain more of what, what a renaissance it's been this year to see Camden Yards absolutely pack out for this team. But Again, they, they deserve it because they've earned every single ounce of it. And again, since March, that's been the word for them is playoffs. It's, it's not a good season if we're not in the playoffs. And that's given the fact that in March, everybody had them set to regress from last year and be worse than last year. That was never going to be the case. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. It, it would be more fun if they were not in the American League East, but Camden is one of my <laughs> favorite ballparks to visit. Obviously great when, when that stadium is uh 
is as it has been this year. Could do a little, could do without some of the the Baltimore Orioles magic here at Rogers Center, though. Uh, Melanie, thanks so much for taking the time out. Good luck with your morning Toronto coffee expedition today. I I know that's a regular for you on the road. Uh, Appreciate you taking the time out. Uh, You know me very well. We'll be at one of my favorite parks later today. Melanie Newman, uh, reporter and host at Masson, MLB Network, ESPN, uh, having a lot of fun around that Orioles team right now. And who can blame her? Who can blame them? Um, Not generally someone who evaluates teams based on energy and vibes and things like that, but they are atop the AL East and they look like among the most confident baseball teams you can possibly see. The the amount of good young talent they have, they've sprinkled in vets. Um, you know, Jack Flaherty isn't a, a frontline starter, but but he's going to help there as he as they try to manage these workloads. Now, I personally have a little bit of concern about, hey, you're going to enter any playoff series and on paper, the opponent is probably going to have a better looking rotation. But I've thought that for the last two years about Baltimore and they they just keep on uh, cruising. Gunnar Henderson, by the way, he's, he does the thing that's always so impressive with young players where he's clearly making mistakes in the field, but he's athletic enough and has a good enough arm to make up for it still and still make the plays. Um, anyway, none of this is to say the Blue Jays should bow at the altar of the Baltimore Orioles. They should win the next two games. It's something they're completely capable of. Uh, you say Kikuchi on the hill against Grayson Rodriguez tonight, and they'll have Kevin Gosman going tomorrow. So if you can muster a win tonight, you're in a pretty good position to try to take the split with your best pitcher on the mound tomorrow. As good and as fun as the Baltimore Orioles are, they're not a team that should be able to take seven of eight and looking forward nine of 10 against the Toronto Blue Jays. The Blue Jays can play much better than they've played over these last two games and over, honestly, the 29 they've played in the American League East. Now, can play better is not the same as will play better. We've got to dig a little deeper to see if that's going to turn around. Who better to dig deep with than Chris Black, sports set producer at Down to Black on Twitter. He joins us in studio for the second hour as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sports Set Radio Network and Sports Set 360. Big opinions and in-depth conversations covering the Leafs, Jays, Raptors, and the NFL. The JD Bunkin Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is probably the worst cover of a song you could possibly hear. Uh, When I was in high school, Disturbed were one of my favorite bands. But that cover sounds like David Draymond of Disturbed trying to do a Crash Test Dummies voice, trying to do Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, It is truly bad. So... I picked it to set the tone for this conversation about a Toronto Blue Jays trade deadline and a 13 to three loss to the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, joining us for the next hour in studio, a producer at sports at, at down to black on Twitter. You know, his threads and love them. Chris black. What's up, buddy? Uh, a lot. Social media was on fire yesterday. I, I was just talking to some folks in the control room and I told them when I went to play it last night was a good night to play hockey a little late night men's league or shinny. When I went into the room, it was people were still upset about the deadline, but it was three, three in the game. <laughs> and when we got out, finished showered up, went back out to the parking lot to have a pop 
Uh, it was 13-3, and it was, yeah, a good game to uh, to not consume live, I would say. Yeah, uh, having consumed it live, I would <laughs> I would agree. It was, uh, and it, it honestly, it, it just kind of cascaded. It was, you know, one bad thing after another. Obviously, you know, we don't need to rehash every beat of it because that seems cruel to the listener, but Hyunjin Ryu gets jumped on pretty quickly so if there was a level of excitement for that and Ryu settled in we can get into some of the the stuff from his start um but you know him getting jumped on early wasn't great and then you have you know you you answer with a couple of runs but before things really got out of hand you have a sixth inning where you put a leadoff hitter on second and then the heart of your order goes down on seven pitches total uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. George, uh, first pitch George Springer second pitch Matt Chapman four pitch strikeout uh not a great thing there and then everything kind of goes the way it was going. Um, Genesis Cabrera, you know, the bloom kind of comes off that with the tough seventh inning. Nate Pearson, uh, clearly the one outing at AAA did not fix everything. He gives up a grand slam after walking the bases loaded. Even Jordan Hicks, um, I think you're fine with that one. He gives up two in the ninth. It's kind of a make work game because he he really hasn't yep. pitched much lately. Um and hey, who knows? It keeps the ERA artificially high for those <laughs> extension negotiations. Yeah, exactly. uh, but not a very good day. 13-3 overall. Um, Chris, what stood out to you uh, about that? And I know you only watched the first the first little bit live, but I know you dive into all these games uh, after the fact. I guess let's start with Ryu because that's kind of the thing we have to take the most from moving forward. He ends up giving them five plus four earned nine hits. Uh, what did you what did you see good? What did you see concerning? Um, a lot of what I saw was what I saw when I watched his two Buffalo starts. Um, command is really, really good. Um, Velo isn't there. And the pitch that I was most interested in uh, last night Change was... Changeup was great. Changeup remains really, really good. And that's the, like, enthusiastic kind of stepping stone. Like, he was... It was... He threw more changeups than he threw in Buffalo, probably because he just knows he's got it ready to go well as you pointed out before the game though as well the orioles are a team that hits lefty changeups poorly yeah and that's what you were kind of hoping for he threw a lot of curveballs the curveball looked really good that's another kind of positive sign but the part that i was worried about um and we saw it in a couple instances were not just the fastballs but he barely threw the cutter and i feel like that might be the one pitch that's either not back or they might just shelve entirely when it's a good cutter it's getting up into the mid to upper 80s and like in a perfect world we're used like 90 91 fastball 89.3 yesterday yeah. was the average yeah. an 88 cutter and the fastball velo was getting close but the cutter is not like the cutter is like 84 85 and at that point it's just kind of like a slider that doesn't break that much mm -hmm. um so he really didn't throw a lot of them um and we have heard from some pitchers in the past that that is the last that's the toughest pitch to get the feel back for yeah and i i honestly when everyone was talking about uh ryu's recovery from tommy john i wondered if part of the reason why a guy like him could come back so quickly is because he's relying on a 90 mile an hour fastball and a changeup. like that kind of stuff isn't doesn't put a ton of strain on your arm but the cutter kind of does like out of all the things that he would throw the cutter would theoretically be the hardest as you said to find the feel for but also kind of get the velo for so i i'll be interested to see how much he uses that pitch going forward we definitely saw fewer fastballs than we saw in buffalo which again makes sense i kind of feel like he's kind of going to be like 
Manoa is right now, meaning when he plays or pitches against a team that's not a great offensive team, he can have some success. When he faces a team that chases change-ups, that doesn't show a lot of plate discipline, he can have some success. But the Orioles are a really good hitting team, and it was still decent. Like, if you would have... If he wouldn't have come back, and I, um, this isn't me debating the decision because I, I see the logic in it, but if he would have been done at five innings with three earned, I think we all would have said, yep, mm-hmm. I'll check mark, I'll sign up for that. So the the middle-middle changeup that Gunnar Henderson hits for a home run, yeah, like I understood the lefty-lefty platoon, all that stuff, but I there were signs, reasons to be optimistic, and also you saw the limitations of Kyung Jim Ryu coming back from Tommy John. And you were going to Richards anyway, so that maybe you are comfortable with the righty versus lefty 100%. in that spot anyway. Now, part of why Ryu was allowed to go back out for the sixth, I think, was, well, one, he had the rough first inning and then pretty much settled in from there. Uh, Urias had uh, the double against him in the second, but otherwise not a ton of hard contact outside of that first inning. A couple loud outs, but nothing too dramatic. And then... Also, he was remarkably pitch efficient for a guy who allowed nine hits and walked a batter. He only threw 80 pitches over five plus the Gunnar Henderson, um, the Gunnar Henderson home run. Now, pitch efficiency doesn't matter if you're not pitching well. If you're throwing the first pitch and they're hitting it every time, sure, you're going to be very pitch efficient per batter, but you're not going to have great results. Um, Is there an element of you, though, that finds encouragement in the ability to get through five on fewer than 80 pitches, just in terms of what you can layer on from here. Can you nibble a little bit more? Can you be a little bit more aggressive outside of the zone? And Hey, if things are going well, maybe we look at Hyunjin Ryu as occasionally, you know, at least against a bad team that that end of August stretch of schedule, maybe he could be a six inning guy at times. hundred percent. I really like, but with him, like you don't even, I remember when we were talking about Manoa in this scenario, where we talked about be over the plate first and then learn to work those edges. Mm-hmm. With Ryu, it's something completely different. He can work edges all game long. like he, And it's not like there's not an added benefit to him going further out. You know what I mean? Like especially with the changeup. Like mm-hmm. a changeup way out isn't going to elicit a swing the way a, a Manoa breaking ball would or something like that, like a nasty breaking ball. So That was he, great mechanics. By the way. Yeah, thank you. That was my wrong hand. Um, but like... Yeah, the curveball, and we saw him throw some curveballs in the dirt to elicit some swings. Um, But he's, I think this is, you're not going to see a big jump in terms of what Ryu brings you. Like, I kind of think what we saw yesterday is what we're going to see from him going forward. Maybe the velo ticks up, but, and again, like, I think that's kind of good enough for what what he's bringing. Um, You know, but as you said, against a bad team, against some poor approaches, yeah, he could easily get six, seven innings out of him. So hopefully that that keeps up. But, you know, um, I think there's bigger concerns coming out of the last few games. Yes. Um, so just to close the the Ryu note, um, his next two starts, if the Jays stay on the six-man rotation, will be against the Cleveland Guardians, not the Boston Red Sox, and then the Chicago Cubs. He's the fifth man in this six-man rotation, so he'd get the final one of those starts. Now, you can always choose to go with Kikuchi on normal rest on the 13th against the Cubs, whatever you've got, you've got a lot of options with the extra rest you'll have by then. And then off days on the 14th, 17th and 21st, uh, you can kind of do a number of things there. You have a what, thought. What would you do if you, because they have so many options, because they have mm-hmm. a six man rotation because they have off days, they've got another seat. Now the division isn't necessarily in play anymore, 
But they've got a three-game set in Baltimore in a few weeks. Yeah. Which three start? Let's assume Gossman is for sure in yes. there. Let's assume we know about Bassett's platoon issues. We know about his struggles against the Orioles. Barrios kind of the similar platoon issues. I not want as Barrios bad. in that so in I. that in that series so regardless. Who would be the third guy you'd want to see in that? Series? Honestly, I'd probably it, it's probably not the I'm not optimizing it for best three starters because I want some separation between guys anyway. But I I'd probably Roll it, Gosman, Kikuchi, Barrios, if you can work the rotation that way. I haven't gone through. You've got three off days in there, so really any order is on the table. Um, But I actually like Kikuchi against the Orioles with how lefty-heavy they can be. And, and, I mean, I just like Kikuchi right now a lot anyway. So I think that's what I would be. But, yeah, like you could – you could. it was interesting seeing what Ryu did last night, whether you'd want to put him back in against the Orioles. I don't know what the answer to that question is, but just something – and as I said, like – seven and a half back now, maybe lining things up for Baltimore isn't uh, top of mind. Yeah, maybe you are uh, trying to slide into that third wild card spot so you get the AL Central winner in the in the first round. And look, to be honest, after this Red Sox series, the Jays' schedule is going to turn, maybe not after this Red Sox series because the Guardians are okay. Um, but Can't you, hit, though. You Can't do, hit. They cannot hit. And you have that, and they just traded Savali. And, um, you, but you do have that stretch in late August coming up will you where you'll go Cleveland, Washington, Colorado, Oakland, Kansas City. It doesn't get easier than that and, and I do I'm not putting the obviously if they lose these next two you're nine and a half back. You've only got a couple left against the Orioles. It's more or less gone. I do think if you could salvage a split here Five and a half back, three more against the Orioles later this month. That two-week stretch of easy competition. I don't yep. think you could rule it out entirely. That's just soft, such a soft part of schedule. And I know when you're not playing good baseball, the opponent doesn't really matter. Right. Um, you can lose to anyone. But when we're looking ahead that far, I think it's reasonable. But you, you got to take – you got to win tonight. You got to – you got to salvage game, a split here. It feels like every game, we're talking about biggest series of the year, biggest game. Like, this is one of those. Kikuchi's been in this spot a few times where, like, in kind of spots where they really needed wins as well. And he's he's come through quite often this year. So this is this might be his biggest start of the year, I would say. Yeah, and the Jays' results when he pitches are, are pretty strong. They've won uh, three of his last four starts. They've won five of his last seven. Um, they, they've been doing pretty well, and, and we can pivot there. We'll, we'll do some trade deadline stuff. We'll just save that for the second block for the sake of of splitting this up. We'll stay on this series uh, for right now. So Yusei Kikuchi will go tonight. They let him go a little longer last time against the Dodgers because the bullpen was in disarray and heading into an off day, that extra uh, extra bit there was important. But also he was electric against them. One earned over six innings, eight strikeouts. The second consecutive start, he had eight strikeouts. We're at three starts in a row now without giving a home, giving up a home run, which is, you know, lowering the bar maybe a uh, artificially low, but given what his season had been like, it feels important. Uh, are you at a spot with Yusei Kikuchi where this five-inning training wheel thing can be put behind him? Um, Kind of, but also he determines that mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Like, we were talking about Ryu and ultimate pitch efficiency. Um, Kikuchi's kind of not the exact opposite of that, but way more on the other side of the spectrum. I mean, there have been some times, though, where they take him out after four and two-thirds or five, and he's in the, like, 70s for pitches or low yep. 80s. Well, because they were afraid of, afraid isn't the right word, but managing against that third time through the yeah. order. Which, 
and I know we're chopping up small samples into even smaller samples here, but his OPS against the third time through the order is actually less than the first two times through the order. And while that's probably noise, it's worth noting that your third time through the order stats are heavily skewed toward the top of the order, right? <laughs> because you don't face seven, eight, nine guys first. Very often. You yeah. only face one, two, three first. So I, I do think there's some encouraging signs if you if you look into the third time through the order stats. Yeah, and I what I like about what he's been doing as he's kind of righted the ship, there was a little hiccup uh, maybe a few weeks ago, is it's the breaking ball stuff. Mm-hmm. It's sliders and curves, um, and it's the slower breaking balls. Really like that pitch for him. Stealing strikes early, using it to get ahead. It's the pitch. It's always been the pitch he can command the best. I think some narratives, I've heard a few discussions around Kikuchi where they they kind of said the slider was a pitch he kind of got away from, or, or there's you can't really uh, compare year over year with Kikuchi, because he's kind of calling pitches different things. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, right now he's kind of still throwing a slider and a cutter. He's just calling it a curveball and a slider instead. Like it's, but he's still dialed down the velo on those. But it's just been, he's really found a comfort zone with those breaking balls, and he's been really, really good. And this is a huge test for him, as you said. Like it's kind of a good spot in terms of lefties and kind of the right lineup to face, but. The Orioles are just swinging amazing. They're a really, really good lineup. Uh, could have done more, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. later on the other side of things. But, yeah, it's a good challenge for them tonight. Yeah, only Jack Flaherty and Shintaro Fujinami coming in. But, yeah, this is a team that can't find playing time for Jordan Westberg, who would be both teams' most exciting prospect call-up. And he's just a, a part. We'll see him today because I doubt they play Adam Frazier uh, lefty on lefty. Um, we'll probably see a very different look. Than, uh, than we saw earlier in this series. Um, Westberg, of course, starting yesterday uh, against Ryu. Okay, so also in that game, actually, let's one more thought on the starting pitching. We're, we're in the six-man rotation. We're all pretty sure that uh, it is going to be the case for this 17 and 17 stretch. That's two and five, sixth way through the order. Um, things will change then. Now, I know a lot of this is these things sort themselves out. Someone might get injured. Someone might perform poorly. Um, do you have... Like, I guess just what is your comfort level with what the Jays are doing right now? And it becomes a little more real yesterday with Hyunjin Ryu being activated because your bullpen is now officially a man short, even if that man is Mitch White. Has Dan Shulman trademarked that sentence yet? Or the these things have, have a, way a way of, of working themselves <laughs> yeah. out? Yeah, because that comes up all the time. Um, but he's always right. He's and always right. The, the scary thing about it, though, is that they don't always have nice ways of working themselves out. Like someone's arm or knee could explode or could allow nine runs over a third of an inning. Like there's nothing to say that it's a good way that these things work themselves. Yeah, out. Exactly. Could we, we aren't recording, right? Like these, these things aren't recording. Like we didn't hear, we didn't both say Dan Shulman is right quite often. Right. We don't want, yeah. we don't want him to hear that, but um, yeah, I, I like it. Like, I think you need to see what Ryu brings. You need to see if Manoa's incremental progress continues and like, because as you said, it might sort itself out in that way. Um, if it doesn't, like if, if the likeliest heaviest part of the bell curve is those guys at the back end are kind of average. Um, I think then it, there's an interesting discussion about, you know, I, I heard, I know after Kikuchi's last start, the prevailing wisdom was he's earned his spot in this rotation and he can't be taken out. And, I, I just don't know if that's necessarily true. I do think he's been very good, 
but I don't know if Manoa or Ryu have the capability to come. This out is of the, the thing, and like it's it's unfair to Kikuchi purely on twenty twenty three merit that he would be the man out, but he's also the only one of those guys. Like Barrios, Bassett, and Gosman are not going anywhere, and I think Kikuchi would be an electric reliever, and I don't think Manoa or Ryu would be. Yeah, like I guess I guess the difference. I fully agree with you, and I guess the difference in terms of how I see it, like I don't view it as a demotion if he gets put into the pen because I think they'll turn him into a kind of a really powerful multi-inning weapon. Um, I'm not going to say he's going to be as good as an Andrew Miller, but like that's what you'd kind of hope for and that you're bringing him in to give you six or seven outs in a really important game. And with the way we evaluate pitchers and any pitcher addition on the market, you're going to look ahead to what does that guy look like for us in the playoffs? I don't even think, and look, Kikuchi's a year and a half out from free agency, so maybe it's not even a concern yet. But if there was some concern of, oh, moving me to the bullpen carries a stigma or my numbers aren't whatever, I really do think, being able to show teams like, hey, if I'm your fourth starter and then playoff time, you want to bounce me back. Incredibly I, think that valuable. In- I think that increases your value. It, like, look at how much we talked about guys at this deadline, like Michael Lorenzen, who have experience bouncing between those roles and the value that that brings to where Michael Lorenzen started getting talked about as almost higher value than some guys who are purely starters and haven't had the experience doing that, even though those other starters, you know, I'd argue in a vacuum, Jack Flaherty's probably a better pitcher than Michael Lorenzen, but we talked about Michael Lorenzen as higher value. Partially he's having a better season, but also that ability to do both is really valuable this time of year. A hundred percent. It's the Ross stripling, you know, when he was at his peak, when he was right, that was part of his great value was being able to be, whatever you needed. So if that's what the future holds for Kikuchi, I I don't view it as a demotion. I think he could be a valuable weapon. And as I said, I think that's like where we're likely headed and what like the types of things we're going to be discussing in a week to 10 days to two weeks. And it's, it's the timing of it is a little awkward too, because you're going to hit that spot where you have off days, 14, 17, 21, 31. So you've got a lot of off days there. If this were September, this is also easy, right? Where you have the extra spot. And I do wonder if, I don't think they would do it, but like the other flexibility piece you have is you could just option Manoa to AAA for a couple starts and be like, hey, we've got a bunch of off days up. We want you staying on five days rest or every fifth day. Um, so we're going to do that. I think that's a tough sell and it's a, it's a weird one to navigate, but that is the other flexibility option you have. Yeah, I, it is the other option. I, I just, to me, and... You're right, like it's there are reasons and valid reasons to consider that. But to me, it's just not worth it's not as good of an option to Kikuchi to the pen. That he can be a weapon and the value of keeping Kikuchi in the rotation and bringing up who would be the reliever that you'd bring up in that scenario. Well, I guess we still need to figure out Jay Jackson coming back and all those kinds of things. But yeah, I just I like that option because I think he can be valuable in many different ways. Yeah, I think so uh, as well. Okay, so before we get into trade deadline stuff, last thing on yesterday's game or this stretch, you said when we brought up Ryu, you said he's not chief or even high among your concerns from the recent play. Uh, are we going to George Springer route here? Or where are we going? George Springer is about to maybe tie and then break a franchise record for hitless yeah. streak. Um, there are a, a lot of cracks that have shown of late. What were you specifically referring to? Yeah, I think it's George Springer. Um but not like I mean, yes, the Hitler. I don't care about the Hitler streak. It's it kind of sucks that he has to go through that and like 
you don't want to be, you know, you never want to be associated with a record like that, but it's also weird luck. He hit the ball hard on Sunday a bunch of times, didn't get a hit. So I, the hitless streak, I don't care about, but it's more the bigger picture with him. And you and I, I feel like have, we're kind of early on these conversations uh, with Springer, even a month back, even more than that. Mm-hmm. We were talking about, I think we were early on the like, Moving him out of leadoff. Yeah, and it was weird because, like, when he struggled a lot at the start of the season, I wasn't worried because there were a lot of positive indicators under there. And then he he turned it around for a bit, and then it kind of went south again. And there are far fewer positive indicators right now. Yeah, like, it's... When you look at... There's these things on the Baseball Savant website where you can see a rolling average of different different measurable things, whether it's expected batting average, slugging, exit velo. And what you're seeing this year is he's had two now, like deep valleys early in the year. And now like the current stretch he's on that are among, that are equally two of his worst stretches, his two worst stretches dating back five years. Yeah. So two deep stretches in the valleys have gone deeper. While if you look at those charts, the peaks are shorter and not as high. So you know, is this a new reality for Springer? Like, he's a better player than this, we know. But it's just, it's such a difference to a year or two ago when he was, when he, in 2021, he hit some monster home runs. There was a, there was a home run he hit. I can't remember if it was Buffalo or Dunedin. I think it was Buffalo, but I could be wrong. He hit one. It had to be 450, 460, where we had the, I asked the Stackass Savant 3D guys to build a, a rendering of that home run if it was at the Rogers Center. And it was like a fifth deck <laughs> and not even like along the line, like fifth deck. It was a massive shot. We haven't seen a lot. Like forget the cold stretches, like forget figuring out what's going on with them right now. Like we just haven't seen that explosive, powerful George Springer a lot this year. So, And the other thing that comes up as you have multiple valleys and have you, as you have extended valleys, Certainly, we expect George Springer to regress positively at some point. He is not a 695 OPS guy, even here, you know, shortly ahead of his 34th birthday. Like, it's too early for him to have dropped to that guy. But when we talk about regression, we don't talk about you're regressing to 2019 all-star MVP ballot George Springer. The level to which we expect George Springer to regress changes over time and in now his third consecutive season of fairly steady decline, that level we're expecting George Springer to regress back to is, you know, maybe he's a 775 OPS guy the rest of the way instead of, you know, our expectations earlier in the season that he'd regress back to being, say, an 825 or an 850 guy. And that's a pretty big difference when you're talking about a guy who's either leading off or hitting in the five spot for you. Uh, It's a tough one. And it makes you wonder why the Toronto Blue Jays didn't think to add a little extra oomph on the position player side because your options right now, if you don't want to play George Springer every day, are to play a struggling Dalton Varsho even more or to play Kevin Biggio in right field a little bit more or to reach and scramble and try to pick up Jordan Luplo as he falls off the DFA table and ends up on the Minnesota Twins or something like that uh, in the coming days. You probably would have felt a lot more comfortable with an extra right-handed hitting bat. Let's take a break. When we come back, this block has been slightly more positive than I maybe would have anticipated coming off of last night's game and teeing up uh, the rest of this Orioles series. 
I don't think I'm going to be very positive. Perfect. This next one, as we revisit uh, trade deadline stuff with Chris Black, who stays with us as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, those who know, know that that song is a, a little reference to some other non-baseball news that, that may have came out uh, this morning. We won't ask Chris Black about that because he has no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, we will ask Chris Black about the Toronto Blue Jays trade deadline activity or lack thereof. Chris Black will start broad and we'll narrow down from there. I have a feeling we're going to disagree a little bit on, on the overall state of things. How did you feel about the Toronto Blue Jays deadline? Uh, I really liked the Hicks pickup. I love the Hicks pickup. Uh, I liked the necessary uh, pickup to back up Bichette. Um, and then we were all expecting, yeah, one more bat. And I think we were all expecting. And I also think without any inside knowledge that they were probably trying to get that bat mm-hmm. and it just didn't happen. Um, I'll give you inside knowledge. They were trying to get that, yeah, that bat yeah, and it didn't happen. Like, now that doesn't, that doesn't forgive not doing it. Everyone's trying and either succeeding or failing to do things. But yeah, they, they wanted one. And I, I think anyone who watched Ross Atkins media availability yesterday picked up that sense of frustration on his part. Yeah. Reading between the lines of both what he said and when you read the clips and quotes from over in Seattle. Jerry DePoto, yeah. It was very, very strange. It, the, the Mariners are fascinating anyway because this is the second time in three years yeah, they've been in the wild card race and traded away their closer. And from a purely I play out of the park baseball standpoint, I get it. You sell high on your closer. You turn them into anything. They're going to, every closer is going to turn into a pumpkin at some point, but the optics for your fan base, the optics for the room for trading away your closer multiple times in wildcard races, and then not going all the way on selling expiring pieces. Like every indication we've gotten over the course of the year is that they haven't really talked much with Teoscar Hernandez about a long-term extension. So he's headed to free agency. Um, his value has kind of cratered. So maybe they didn't want to trade him at the low of his value, but it's, it's get something for him or get nothing for him. And you did not operate as if you're a team that thinks you can win the wild card. It felt like reading between the lines that there was an impression or some type that it was not a 0% chance, but like that they were not going to trade Oscar to the Blue Jays. It felt like the with there was a tweet that came out midday that said the Blue Jays were front runners for Tay Oscar. Um, but then when you read between the lines of what these guys were saying afterwards, it seemed like the Jays were interested and were parsing words and were speculating. But it seems like they were interested in Tay Oscar, and it seemed like it would have been, you know, publicly acknowledging a loss on a trade, I feel like, for the Mariners to move him back to Toronto for pennies on the dollar. Like he wouldn't have carried a big value. He really, his overall numbers aren't great. The bullet point everyone hits on are leads the league in strikeouts. I really don't care all that much. Still mashes lefties for a part-time 
for a part-time DH fill-in pinch hitter, I don't care about the strikeouts. Matt Stairs struck out a lot and was the best <laughs> postseason pinch hitter of all time. So like, I, like that stuff I didn't care about. But I was intrigued by that. And where I'm intrigued by, yes, I would have hoped that they added another bat. But where I think I differ in most people's reactions to this deadline is what the marginal value of that one right-handed bat would have been. Like, if they would have added Tommy Pham, what what do people really think he would have contributed as that extra righty-up? Like, I feel like it's a really small marginal amount for the difference in what people's perception of their deadline would have been. And I know we're kind of getting into the weeds here, but I just, I like the other moves a lot. And I just, yes, I would have, liked uh, that last piece but i don't think the difference in how people feel about the deadline is commiserate or equal to what that right-handed bat would have brought sure i i will say this though they have given 82 plate appearances this year and we'll yes. take tyler heineman out they've given 62 plate appearances to nathan lucas jordan luplo ernie clement and spencer horwitz yep. um that is a number that you would like to go to and hey we're two-thirds of the way so that's only another 30 plate appearances the rest of the way from that slot but it's still 30 plate appearances that you'd upgrade from Ernie Clement, Nathan Lucas, and Jordan Luplo to that player. I'd also say that you would probably like to give Dalton Varsho fewer than the prorated amount of the 403 plate appearances that he's had so far. We just talked about George Springer's struggles, and if you wanted to get him more regular off days on merit or on, hey, let's try to get him right physically, whatever is up there. Uh, you can't currently do that as you're constructed. We've also seen a number of times in late game scenarios where John Schneider, I mean, he hasn't said he felt hamstrung, but there have been moves where you'd certainly like a different right-handed look off the bench, or there are moves that weren't made probably because that bat wasn't there. And those are harder to captured the way you're saying with the Tommy fam type or whoever Tay Oscar, because those plate appearances are not created equally. I fully agree. And I agree with all those points. And that's where, but to me, that's where the value in a Tay Oscar was, mm -hmm. was DHing against lefties, pinch hitting for Kiermaier or Varsho late in games. But he wasn't like, he wasn't, you're still not going to, and this is where I always landed. Like they have, they made a commitment to defense, pitching, and that's worked by and large so far this year. I didn't think they were all of a sudden going to pivot away and put a Kyle Schwarber type in left field and all of a sudden be... No, even like Josh Naylor came up as a name. It's yeah. like, well, even Cleveland, who's not trying to win, doesn't trust him in a corner. Opening. Yeah, like, so I I didn't think they were ever going to, like, drastically change. Like, I didn't think Varsha was going to move to the bench. And so I But just, I'm not saying move to the bench. I'm understand. saying he yep. has... He's fifth on the team in plate appearances, yep. and he's been he's in an extended yep. trouble spot at the plate. You would love for that to be maybe he's seventh or eighth on the team in plate yep. appearances. Still an everyday guy nominally, but an, a couple extra you know off days here and there or, or pinch hit situations here and there. But when, I mean, the big unknown here is Bichette, but if mm -hmm. Bichette is healthy relatively soon... He's back in a week Paul or Paul DeYoung so. takes some of those because second Merrifield base. goes to He left goes to field. second base. Merrifield goes to left. So when I saw that, like, it, it's still not, again, like, I still thought that Teoscar was maybe coming. Um, and I would have, I think that made perfect sense. But I still also, to me, this was an improvement on if you have Merrifield in left more, a little bit more, 
I view DeYoung as an improvement over what they had at second base. Yeah, so, okay, so let's go in on DeYoung a little bit. So we can we can agree that they needed an extra right-handed bat. Maybe the our feeling of the severity of that need is a little different. They did get DeYoung. Right now it looks like, hey, he's the Bo Bichette fill-in until Bo gets right, however long that is going to be. Um, where are you? I think we all like the defense. The defense grades out well pretty much however we uh, look at it. I'm sure you're a believer that if you can do it at shortstop, you can do it at second base, even without the reps. Yep. Okay. So where are you on Paul DeYoung's bat? Because this is a guy who hit 74 home runs over his first three seasons. Only one of those in which he was a full-time player. And since then has completely fallen off a cliff. Yes. Hit 19 home runs in 2021, but also hit under 200, uh, hit a buck 50 last year and had to spend a good chunk of the season in the minors. Um, This year, he's kind of split the difference does have 13 home runs. I know he's hitting lefties better this year. That is not something that's been pronounced in his career. Um, Where do you think the utility of Paul DeYoung's bat, you know, that's, those are some dramatic highs for a middle infielder and some dramatic lows for any position. Uh, Where do you think that comes out in the wash? He, his acquisition is as much about Santiago Espinal's play as anything else. Right. Um, Fully acknowledging everything you just said, it's all facts about his hitting and where it's gone. I mean, they're facts, but they're in every different direction. I don't, sure. I don't know how yeah, to you don't, sift Yeah, you that. don't really know what you're getting, but here's what we do know is that Espinal has not been the same player as last year, not only offensively, but more surprisingly, defensively. Mm-hmm. Thought uh, he looked okay yesterday, but, you know, one not, game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What what stands out to me is we have a, a service that we uh, that we use sometimes, like a research site, uh, it's called Inside Edge. And I always forget that I have access to that. <laughs> it's a little subjective um, in terms of defensive stuff, but they like grade plays on like, a, you know, did you have a zero to 20% chance, 20 to 40, 40 to 60? Anyways, if you measured, you know, all the plays that had less than a 60% chance of being made for Espinal, in terms of the ones he made, it was like 11 in 2021. He made 13 of them last year. And this year, he's made one. Now, again, subjective, but to me, that's that's dialing into what the advanced macro numbers are telling us about his defense. That just, like, when you dive into the numbers, he's just making fewer good plays, fewer tough plays. And when you look at, you know, I've looked at kind of a whole bunch of them, he's... It's not only he's making errors, but he's also not making those 50... Let's call them 50-50 plays. So it's... If you're not getting that kind of value from Espinal for whatever reason, and you're not getting the hitting, then yeah, I view DeYoung as a as an improvement. Now, the big unknown, as we said, is Bichette. Like if it's if Bichette is out for six weeks or most of the rest of the season, then then yeah, I think there is more of a hole uh, in the outfield, especially if Varsho and Springer continue to struggle. But if Bo comes back, then I like this move in terms of improving that. 10, 11, 12 spot in the, in the lineup. And that last spot, like the other thing that we, some people were talking about Nelson Cruz. Some people are talking about uh, Trey Mancini, Mancini. Colton Wong and Gene Segura are going to be free agents at some point too. I mean, personally, I'm more excited by some guys in Buffalo who could fill that spot than any of those guys. Yeah. So who, I mean, I know none of us are watching every single Buffalo Bisons game. There's a risk of scouting the stat line here, but I think 
all of us in, in our roles, ask around the team, ask around Buffalo, uh, ask around some scouting people to see, you know, what's going on under the hood there. So let's play out a scenario where Bobachet's going to miss a little bit of time. Let, let's pick the medium outcome where it's let, let's say four weeks. It's not pushing him into September. It's not short enough that you, you want to live with Ernie Clement as that kind of no offense to Ernie Clement wasted spot at the end of, uh, at the end of the roster in terms of depth. Um, do you have a lean on who you would like to see up? Addison Barger has played 18 games at shortstop this year. Also second, third right field or Martinez has played more shortstop, but not particularly well. Also has some third base experience. Davis Schneider, second, third, first left field, but not on the 40 man. Uh, and then, yeah, Ernie Clement is uh, is in the mix there as well. Or Spencer Horwitz, who positionally redundant uh, as a left-handed first base slash DH guy. Because I'm a exit velo nerd and because I remember how excited we all got in the spring, um, I want to see Barger get an opportunity. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to come. But he's, he's been a batted ball monster. Like we have the stat cast stuff for AAA now, and you have to look game by game instead of looking at a player's uh, a player's individual page like we can for major leaguers. But he is uh, he's stinging a lot of balls. I I just think yeah, like he he provides a ceiling that I think a Schneider. I'm still very bullish on Schneider. I've seen a bunch of clips, but I just there's a ceiling to Barger, and he he could be someone who could come up and maybe gets on a hot streak and, you know, hits a couple out of the park. So that's that would be one player I'd be really interested to see uh, at some point before the end of the year. But, yeah, I just I just, I like the value of what DeYoung could bring. And I just, if it offers, there was nothing out there. <laughs> like, when you, the fact that Candelario might be the best position Carlos player. Carlos Santana, who, again, on this team, you weren't going to fit in positionally. Yeah, it doesn't change the fact that, yeah, it doesn't change the I've fact that they I've got lots of time one. for G-Man Choi, but, again, where is where are those plate appearances coming without the positional flexibility? Yeah, I was looking last towards last night after I got home. Like, I think there's one or two guys that maybe have more home runs than DeYoung who, who moved. So, like, there really wasn't a lot out there. But, again, it doesn't change what they needed to do. But... It is comparative. I heard you in the first hour um, talk about the analogy of running away from, I can't remember what predator it was. Bear. A bear. There you go. Um, And it's a proper analogy. Like, yes, you could have made up more ground, but, man, no one did anything. Mm -hmm. And I just, like, when I look at the Orioles, when I look at what they did, if I was an Orioles fan today, or to view it in a different way, if the Blue Jays were in their position two years ago and they were leading the division, and had a stacked farm system, and all they did was get us an um, average starter, and that's what Jack Flaherty is. Mm-hmm. I would be frustrated. Like, but then I'd also be watching my team in first place and mashing the ball everywhere. I get yes. it. But I, we were talking about this upstairs this morning. They're going to play. If you were, is there a scenario where you would pick them in a second round series out of, against the teams they're likely to face? They're going to face the four five winner. Mm-hmm. In the wild card, if that's Houston, is anyone picking Baltimore in that series? I don't think so, and I think a lot of that comes down to what the starting pitchers look right. like on that's, paper. That's right? always what people do in a playoff series. Mm-hmm. You look at the starters, and you make a determination from there. Like I it, do, I do think Baltimore's good, but I yes, think awesome. I, I think. And honestly, I don't. This is not me reporting, but I really do think that the Cubs' winning streak 
took Marcus Stroman to the Orioles off the table. I have not talked to Marcus Stroman about this. I would be shocked if he wouldn't have been really up for the opportunity to stick it to the Blue Jays in a, in a playoff race as much as he loves the city and, and the fan base. Um, I think he would have been really fired up for that. And I think, yeah, if the Cubs don't go on this run and push themselves close to the wild card, um, you know, maybe Stroman instead of Flaherty is an Oriole and that looks a little different. Yeah, and they could have gone out. We heard rumblings about Cease being available. Well, Asking Ver- price sounds like it was astronaut, as but, it should be. But if anyone could pay that price, it's the Orioles. And I mean, again, Jordan Westberg, who would be most teams' most exciting call prospect, playing two, three times a week. Yeah, I just think they had a opportunity to push quite a few chips into the table, and they made the, the decision not to. They're going to be great for the next mm-hmm. three or four years, but if we've learned anything as Blue Jays followers, fans over the last few years, your window is never as big as you think it, or as long mm-hmm. as you think it is. It was, op- it's open for the Orioles right now. The, the American League is, there's a lot of parity. I really don't think there's a dominant, dominant team in the American League. It's there for the taking. And if you are a team like the Orioles that doesn't want to spend with the Yankees and the Red Sox, they want to be the, I, I'm not the first person to say this, they want to be the Rays, not the Yankees striking while all your good young star players are completely free by the standards of baseball, everyone making the minimum. That's the best time to do it. I mean, the Jays are running into that as we, as we go along here too, where Bo and Vlad are, are deeper into ARB and you know, the money is going more commensurately to your young players. So uh, I'll pivot off of that because another thing that blue Jays, and we won't say this is a missed opportunity because again, the prices are what they are, but we can look ahead to a very weak free agent class. We can look at a blue Jays team that is going to have a couple of marquee free agents. And one of the things that this front office has always talked about, all of our analysis is colored by the fact that if this front office puts chips in the table for a trade, almost always that is going to include a player who is controllable. So when we looked at, second base options, left field options, things like that. We really did tend to focus on guys who could be a part of this year's team and future years. Now, Paul DeYoung is not that his $12.5 million player option for next year. The Cardinals actually footed the bill for the buyout as part of this deal. So the Jays just can walk away from that option. I think they will at 12.5 million. Um, Whit Merrifield, the free agent, Matt Chapman, a free agent, Kevin Kiermaier, Brandon Belt, Jordan Hicks, uh, a free agent. There are going to be some spots to fill. Um, does this, and this is a little too early for this because we've got a playoff race to, to focus on as well. Have you started to work through now how that makes you feel about, about the offseason ahead? It's going to be a, if last offseason was almost, um, there weren't a lot of kind of choices to make. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, the Varsho move was big. Um, they signed a couple of free agents. It was interesting, but like the lineup was pretty much set. Um this year, yeah, like there's, you've got, they could re and reimagine this lineup in a whole bunch of different ways. So it's, it's wide open. I posted a question on social media a few days ago about how many of the names we were talking about a few minutes ago. Martinez, Barger, uh, Schneider. Horowitz. Horowitz. And I think you could include Leo Leo Jimenez in there, probably more as a a bench, like in the Espinal role. But everything I hear about his defense is otherworldly and the bats starting to come along. So maybe we – and he only has one more option year left. So maybe we throw him in the mix too. Yeah, like they've got a lot of money coming off the books, but also a lot of holes to fill. And one interesting way of filling all those holes is when when you have less – 
you know, when you've got guys within already making good money and getting raises is filling the majority of those holes or trying to with a barger type with a have Horowitz come up and be a right-handed platoon so, bat. So let me draw the picture of what I think you're pitch, you're picturing here. So the Jays have four holes and let's say they have $40 million to address those. You can go 10 million, 10 million, 10 million, exactly. 10 million. Like you have kind of with Whit Merrifield here, Kiermaier here, Belt here, uh, Chapman even only making 12 and a half this year. That's kind of what it looks like right now. Or you can have three of those guys filled at basically the league minimum. And then you have 35 million sitting there. Now, the only guy like that on the market is Shohei. So, uh, you know, and that's going to cost you, you a lot it, more than me. 35. But yes, that is a, a way to approach it is to not cheap out in a couple of those spots because any team around baseball that's going to sustain success needs minor leaguers to come up and, and contribute. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a different way to allocate finite resources in the offseason. And, and that filling that spot with a high salaried player doesn't need to be a free agent. Right. It can be picking up money. Like, I'm convinced there are lots of teams that are going to be trying to get off big money. And those trades... I mean, we just saw the Mets pay to get rid of Verlander and Scherzer. And that's a specific case. Uh, By the way, I think also the way they've operated makes me... I think they're going to be a big Shohei player. So do I. Oh, 100%. Uh, You can't... Yeah, you can't... He's become the, you know, the Steve Ballmer of of major league baseball. So yeah, but without a salary cap. Yeah. Like everyone, when Max Scherzer came out with those comments yesterday, everyone was like, Oh, they're not in play next year. And I'm like, I wouldn't be so quick to assume that. But yeah, if listen, it's fun to say, Hey, maybe the Jays could be players for Otani. There are some massive, massive markets that are going to be in play for him, but you know, maybe it's a, and a, like maybe it's in play for Nolan Arenado. Maybe the Cardinals really decide to just, Take it down to the rails. I would be more than okay with that, spending $30 million on him and then filling in those gaps somewhere else. So it's that kind of optionality that they have now that's that's exciting. But, yeah, as you said, that's that's more of a October-November thread than a uh, – than in August, 3rd. but it is something that is important here because I, I do think it's a it's a component of the Jays not adding a, at the trade deadline, um, adding anyone with term at least other than Hienesis Cabrera uh, is yeah that they have done their off season shopping early at times uh, by you know with deals like the Whit Merrifield or Jose Brios deal. So I think it, it is uh, an important piece of information. Chris, we've only got two minutes left. Um, so the addition of, of Yanis Cabrera, Bloom comes off a little bit yesterday, but we like what we've seen for the most part. Jordan Hicks slots into that bullpen, four arms now with 30% whiff rates or higher. Uh, assuming Jordan Romano is back at some point, are you comfortable calling this a top three bullpen in baseball? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think they have the... Trying to end on a positive. Hey, why not? Um, I think they have the deepest pitching staff in baseball when you consider starting rotation and bullpen. Um, Now, uh, this was a couple days ago before some two ugly games a little bit, but they were leading the American League in ERA and strikeouts, something that a Blue Jays team has never done before. Um, They've led an ERA a handful of times, um, but never led in both of those categories. And I think these are the types of things that we tend to forget about when we're lamenting the offensive struggles and the offensive struggles are real. And see, they're... I don't forget about it when I'm lamenting the <laughs> offensive struggles. Cause I look at the offensive struggles yes. and I see a game like two or um, what day is it today? Wednesday. So a game like Mondays where the bullpen keeps you in it. They do a great job to make what looked like a game that was going off the rails. They keep it winnable for you and you can't nab it back for them. 
I just, yeah, the pitching staff is is really, really, really deep. I, I'm really interested, like, the the conversation next week, if if I can, and maybe it won't be happening, so I'll be at tennis. Yeah, you'll be at tennis. But, like, figuring out, like, the roster crunch mm-hmm. of the next few weeks is going to be really interesting. But they're just, they have, <laughs> they have a really deep pitching staff. The fact that Jay Jackson is, like, at the bottom of the depth chart. and I mean, we're going to see Cabrera in AAA at some point, probably, just yep. because he has uh, options. Not... Will not be tonight. The one move we'll keep an eye on tonight is does Bobachet go on the IL or does Ernie Clement go down to AAA to make space for Paul DeYoung, who will likely debut tonight. It's Kikuchi against Grayson Rodriguez down at Rogers Center at 7 p.m. Blair and Barker will set you up for that 5 to 7. They'll also have you with Jay's talk post game. Marchese and Rubinoff are coming up next. Thanks to Chris. Thanks to Keegan. Thanks to Melanie for coming on to Jeff, Lance, and Jennifer behind the glass. Jay's Talk Plus back tomorrow at 10 a.m. on the Sportsnet Radio Network at Sportsnet 360.